My name is Victor Kubik, President of the United Church of God. Welcome to another episode of the Inside United podcast. Actually, it's part two of a podcast I have done with Peter Eddington on the subject of our visit or our listening to the Dallas Conference on Science and Faith. And we're talking about some of the lectures that were given there. We've talked about some of the presenters who had fascinating, eclectic topics that were quite diverse about faith and science and how the two work together. So, Peter, let's pick up here with part two. Yeah, sure, Vic. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Yeah, that was a, a fascinating conference a, a few weeks back uh, on science and faith put out by the Discovery Institute. And so last time we talked about two of the presentations, one by Eric Heaton, one by Stephen Meyer, about... Um, First of all, scientific discoveries some atheists don't want you to see. And then Stephen Meyer talked about Isaac Newton and the role of Christianity in the rise of modern science. But three of the other lectures I also found fascinating. One about artificial intelligence, one about engineering in biology, and one about geology and how planets being designed for life. Let me talk about the one on AI, because okay. artificial <laughs> intelligence is kind of the, the big new thing now in, in movies. And Well, the question that Robert Marx asked was, will thinking machines replace humans? So is this kind of science fiction possible? So computer programs are all built around algorithms, mm-hmm. and they're just zeros and ones. They, they're on or off, the yes or no. And so when a situation is analyzed, it's done through the use of an algorithm. We hear of algorithms that drive Google, that drive YouTube, that drive Twitter and Spotify. And those are simply computer programs that analyze what you're interested in and try and give you um, those results in your searches. Algorithms. Well, an algorithm is, no, is nothing but a computer program. And so think of the computer system program, I think it was called Big Blue, that played chess mm-hmm. and beat the world's best chess player. Well, somebody had to write that computer program to come up with all the possible outcomes of a chess move, all the algorithms possible to come up with a chess move. And so it eventually beat... I believe was a Russian mm-hmm. world champion mm-hmm. chess player. Mm-hmm. But Big Blue did not know why it was playing chess, did not know anything about its environment. Big Blue did not know, it had no reasoning. It just followed the programmer's rules. It had no thought process. It was just a computer program. And the computer program is only as smart as the person that wrote it. So Big Blue could not then say, okay, I'm going to learn how to play checkers now. I'm going to learn how to play gin rummy now. No, it was only designed to, to make chess moves. And so thinking machines can't replace humans and become smarter and smarter and smarter. A computer program is only designed to do the thing it was designed for. It can't then break out and write new code of its own to do other things. We can as humans. That's very non-algorithmic. We can come up with new ideas, new plans that weren't part of, say, the original computer program in an AI machine. 
it's impossible to um, have us be replaced by machines. You know, one more thing that's very, very interesting, and it should be very obvious, that life itself, you know, what is life itself? You know, it's here, it comes from former life. I mean, our children come from our life. You know, we are the creation of God. Life is something which comes from a higher source. Was it um, IBM's Watson machine that was on Jeopardy on TV? I believe so. IBM Watson. Mm-hmm. So it was an extremely smart supercomputer that competed on Jeopardy and beat the two of the, the world champions of Jeopardy. And it was like a giant Wikipedia machine, right? It had all this information about history and science and math. And so it could compute questions asked of the Jeopardy contestants very quickly and could beat the, the human beings. So they said, here's an artificial intelligence, intelligence machine that's, that's so smart, it's smarter than humans. But the, the, the computer sitting there on the stage answering the questions didn't know why it was there didn't see the lights, the studio lights up above, didn't know there was a microphone over there, did, didn't know anything about the host of the show, uh, understood nothing about the audience out there, didn't, didn't know where it was or anything. It was, it was just a machine. There was no life in it. It was just following algorithms that had been pre-programmed into it from a huge database. It could not think beyond that. It could not wonder about the weather outside. Could, wouldn't wonder if, if it could get a taxi home after the show. Impossible. Artificial intelligence machines cannot replace humans. And, of course, yes, it is a dead machine. It is not alive. It can't think for itself. I, I know we can, we can be duped into believing that they are alive. I mean, we have a Google, you know, like an Alexa thing, you know, we, in, in our house. Hey, Google. And they said, what's the temperature? You know, it immediately knows what the temperature is. What's the currency conversion for Malawi kwacha to U.S. dollars? It tells us right away, right up to the last second. It has the ability to spit out, process, and, form, and, and present information in a very, very, what appears to be an intelligent way. Let me talk about another presentation given by Brian Miller. It was titled, The Surprising Relevance of Engineering in Biology the surprising relevance of engineering in biology. And what he showed was that the, the, the more scientists come to understand about biology, the cell, uh, animals, plants, that they come to see that it's, it's very, very carefully engineered. I used to wonder about microevolution. So we've always believed macroevolution is not possible. We know an elephant can't become a frog. A chimp can't become a human being. We do not believe in macroevolution like scientists do. They say given enough time, things evolve from one creature into another. We don't believe that. But I always wondered about microevolution because you would find that a moth, if moved from one environment to another, would change its colors, would change its wings, whatever. We, we read about birds that was it finches or something that had one beak but put into another environment that they develop a slightly different beak or something. Uh, we'd, we'd hear about um, fish in caves that evolved to have no eyes. So you put this fish out in a stream and it has eyes, but if you put it into a cave where there's no light, eventually its offspring have no eyes because they don't need them. And they said, well, that was a microevolution. 
And so these creatures were just evolving slightly. And I thought, oh, maybe microevolution is something to that. It's still a fish. It hasn't changed from a fish into a crocodile or suddenly started walking on land. Maybe there is something to this microevolution. Well, Brian Miller, in his presentation on the surprising relevance of engineering in biology, says, no, it's already pre-programmed in the DNA of these creatures. They're not evolving. There's no microevolution. It's already written in by a designer, by an engineer, that if that fish ends up in a dark environment like a cave where there's no light and lives in a stream in the dark, it's already written into its DNA to have its offspring have no eyes in order to enhance other senses, its sense of smell and taste and hearing are developed more acutely because it doesn't need eyes in the dark anymore. But it's not microevolution. It's already pre-programmed into the DNA of the creature to do that. And they were, those are not micro changes. Those are big changes. Eyes or no eyes or no eyes to eyes. I mean, those are not small changes. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was quite a, kind of an eye-opener for me that, mm-hmm. that biologists are starting to realize this is already engineered into the product. Mm-hmm. It's already engineered into the creature, into the animal, into the fish. Mm-hmm. Um, to make these adjustments. Even human beings in different climates will develop uh, more or less melatonin um, for, for, for tanning, for, for, for being able to live in the sun than those mm-hmm. that live at the North Pole. Mm-hmm. But there's already pre-designed in. It's not microevolution. It's part of our DNA. Well, I lived in Minnesota. You know, our seasons were very, very stark. When we went from summer to fall to winter, it was a drop of change of 80 degrees, you know, from mm-hmm. daily temperatures from 100 to, well, it could be up to 100 degrees difference. And I remember the very first days when the cold would hit, you would be freezing because you were not prepared for it. But then after a week or two, you started adapting to colder temperatures. I know that that was just a very, very stark thing, and maybe it was just for us and our family, but I remember going from warm weather to very cold weather over a short period of time. It, it took some adaptation, and I know that my body did something. It was adapting the blood to handle the colder temperatures. I was on a video conference yesterday with one of our pastors from Florida. I said, how's the weather down there? It's four degrees here, Fahrenheit, you know, well below freezing. And he said, well, it's down to 69. We're all putting our coats on. <laughs> yeah. So when you live in a warm climate, it gets down to 69, you, you rug up. Mm-hmm. But here in Cincinnati right now, 69, I'll be in a T-shirt and, and flip-flops. Because I, it had been so cold, it would have felt so warm now. So yes, your body adjusts um, to, to the climate. Another example is people that live in um, cities that are at high altitude, Denver, perhaps, mm-hmm. but think of uh, Mount Everest and Nepal and um, places where there's towns that are 10, 20,000 feet up from above sea level. People's lungs adjust to process the air and the oxygen differently so their body still gets a full supply of oxygen. That's not microevolution when you go up to Mount Everest and then back down to sea level again. No, it's already pre-programmed into our DNA. Well, things have been pre-programmed into us to react to heat or to danger without even thinking. You know, we, we have these 
pre-programmed things. It's, it's not a matter of evolution or anything. It's a matter of some designer said we need to have these cut off or need to have these alert or alarm systems in the body to react quickly. Uh, the final presentation was given by a fellow named Casey Luskin, who's a geologist, and uh, he... <laughs> He gave a 45-minute presentation, but he covered two and a half hours of material <laughs> he sure did. in 45 minutes. The guy can speak a mile a minute. Um, but very enjoyable fellow to, to, to listen to and to watch was, was Casey Luskin. His presentation was, was titled, Insights from Geology on the Design of Our Planet for Life. So why does the Earth sustain life? And he said, because it was designed that way. And, and then he goes through five or six, seven reasons why our Earth is unique and why it couldn't have just happened. I might mention, before I forget, that so many of the presentations were filled with Scripture, mm-hmm. um, showing the relationship between science and the Bible and what God would say about things in the Bible. Um, so that was nice to see them tying Scripture into so many of these presentations. But Casey Luskin's on geology and the design of our planet for life talked about a number of things. First of all, he showed how plate tectonics, you know, how the, um, you know, mountains are formed by two tectonic plates coming together and rising up and you get a mountain, you get a volcano, uh, you get a trench in, in deep trench in the ocean. The, the plates of rock and earth on our planet are always moving. And if they didn't, life would die out on this planet. And there are a number of scientific reasons for it. But one of them is, as sea creatures die and their bones and flesh fall to the bottom of the ocean, it gets absorbed into the limestone. Eventually it gets absorbed down into the the magma and the molten material inside our Earth and gets re-expelled through earthquakes and volcanoes and other natural eruptions And those minerals are expelled back into the atmosphere and back into the ocean and back onto the ground. They don't just stay on the bottom of the ocean. As streams flush things out into the ocean, there's a lot of um, micro-material in there that's the basis of life. It goes to the bottom of the ocean from our streams and lakes and rivers and mountains into the ocean. But it would just all stay on the bottom of the ocean if we did not have plate tectonics and the movement of our continents. That's what regenerates it, gets it down into the, the magma and explodes back again into the atmosphere and gets those nutrients back onto the earth. So plate tectonics is one thing that's been specifically designed. And guess what? You don't find it on other planets in our solar system. Mm-hmm. Um, planets beyond Mars are all gaseous planets. You can't stand on Jupiter. You can't stand on Saturn. There's nothing to stand on. You just sink into a gas until eventually get down to the molten core. It's only Mercury and Venus and Earth and Mars Mars. that have continents, so to Mm -hmm. speak, that have this plate tectonics. But you need the ocean waters to regenerate and make that all happen, that cycle of life. And guess what? Mercury and Venus and Mars don't have any water like the Earth does. They have a a hard crust, but their plate tectonic system is not like on Earth. So he talked about that being designed for life. And then he talked about how possibly we got water on this Earth. Yes. So so the Earth is the only planet in our solar system that has water. 
in liquid form. There's some speculation that Mars has some frozen water. The gaseous planets beyond Mars have no water. It's all because they're in everything's in a gaseous form. There's nothing, no solid, no solid water. But the 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 distance of the Earth from the Sun and the way it's positioned in our solar system begs a mystery because there's no reason that water should have stayed on our planet when the planet was forming. It should have evaporated into space. It was even here to begin with. So scientists say, well, maybe a frozen meteorite hit the Earth that was full of water, and boom, now there's water all over the Earth. Or, you know, maybe this, maybe that. But scientists will say, we have no idea how water got on this planet when it didn't get on any of the others. We, ha- we have no scientific explanation for water here. It, it's, it seems to be miraculous to just to sustain life. Um, then, of course, you've got sunlight and the distance of the Earth from the sun. You've got UV radiation. You've got the, um, oh, what is it, the hole in the atmosphere where the, uh, it's not coming to me. They were so worried about spray cans destroying the ozone. Ozone, ozone. So the ozone layer is perfect for repelling mm-hmm. um, radiation from the sun. The other planets won't do that. So there's all these reasons that the Earth is built to sustain life, and it's kind of miraculous. It's They can't explain a lot of it. Scientists cannot explain a lot of these things we have to sustain life here. You know, Peter, the beautiful thing about all this is, is that if you take a look at knowledge as the Bible, the Word of God is the beginning of knowledge, it really is. It's where you need to start to see the mind of God. And then everything else fits. You don't have to shove or you have to fit things into science. Take a look at what God reveals and then build around that. I'm looking forward next year to hearing what the Discovery Institute has to present at its conference on science and faith. Mm -hmm. No doubt it'll be in Dallas again. They've got Mm -hmm. an office there as well as out in Seattle. Right. They've got a Dallas office too. So I'm looking forward next year to the the Dallas Conference on Science and Faith to see what they bring forward. I really appreciate the work that the Discovery Institute does, you know, in Seattle. They're a very small organization, you know, comparatively speaking, but they really do have a voice of sanity and reason and not condemnation, even let, let's see, let's, let's follow the evidence. Let's follow what we see and see where it leads us to. I've just always enjoyed talking to you about these things. And Peter and I have gone to the last three of these conferences and we've had our wives with us. Of course, my wife is a real big fan of Discovery Institute. That's one organization particularly that she likes to support because of the work, the good work that, that, that they do. So thank you for joining us here on Inside United. Please be sure to tell your friends about our weekly podcast. We really appreciate also to hear from you. We'd like to have you write to us at podcast at ucg.org. And just give us, give us your impression about what you have heard or if you have any questions for Peter or for myself. You can find us on the ucg.org website. Go to the main page, main homepage, and on the main menu line, click on podcast. Or you can hear us through your favorite Apple or Android podcasting app. So have a great week. Thank you for listening. Come back soon for more. Have a great week. This is a production of the United Church of God. For more, visit ucg.org.